<laughs> hey, everybody. This is Harvey Sluggo Wasserman back for the 156th, count them 156, Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom calls. We are thrilled to have you all with us. We have uh, joined. we got a really action-packed uh, uh, agenda. As always, uh, we're going to start in Virginia. There's an election tomorrow in Virginia, although there, it won't be. Uh, you'll know the results by Thursday when this airs on the Progressive Radio Network. But um, uh, so we want to give Andrea a full full shot here, and then we're going to go to uh, Jay Ponte, uh, Adam, and um, uh, the team, and another union guy. Wendy, what's his name? Patrick Crowley. Patrick, and we're going to talk about uh, labor and and the environment. Oh, hi, Patrick. I see you there. Um, uh, we we're going to talk about labor and the environmental movement and the need for labor to get us into Solartopia on green renewables. We'll cover another couple of odd, and odd uh, issues, uh, including the insane new Speaker of the House and uh, some other stuff in the first hour. Second hour, we're going to go to Georgia uh, and the uh, what nobody's talking about, which is the $40 billion um, ex nuclear explosion uh, with the arrival of the Volcker reactors and the question uh, of who, you know, that was in the details, who there are two vacancies on the public service commission in Georgia. The question is who's going to fill those vacancies and who's going to decide uh, who's going to pay the 40 billion bucks for the two reactors. Uh, we also got a big issue in Illinois and uh, we'll be joined by Kevin camps as well. So two really full hours here uh, as always. Um, it's, and it's a joy to see everybody. What a great group uh, of human beings. Uh, so I want, I know that Andrea has a tremendously tight schedule. She's got a big election tomorrow, and she's been great enough to join us today. Andrea Miller of the Center for Common Ground. I saw, I got a mailing from someone I really loathe, uh, Terry, uh, what's his name? Um, McAuliffe. <laughs> McAuliffe, uh, the, the, the Clinton, Clintonite in Virginia, who has, she's, he's calling his movement the Center for Common Good or something like that. Why don't you sue him for plagiarism? Um, <laughs> but go ahead, Andrea, tell us. Andrea is the great guru of green grassroots organizing uh, using um, computer technology. You've tremendously successful, been with us many, many times. She's integral to our whole um, uh, thing here. So uh, Andrea, tell us what you got, and then we're going to go to organized labor. Go ahead, uh, uh, Andrea. All right. Thank you, Harvey. Um, I brought a slide deck because there's a lot of information to go through, but I will do it quickly. Not going to use the whole deck. So anyway, in Virginia, tomorrow is election day and the entire Virginia General Assembly, all 140 seats are up. Now, the Dems hold the Senate and the Republicans hold the House. Early voting ended on Saturday and we did a little better than I thought we were going to do. 776,000 people early voted. And these are the early votes that they counted. There were actually more, we're in the middle of ballot curing. This is down from 1.194 million in 2021. But that was our statewide race where we had governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general at the top of the ticket. 
So 2023, that is our midterm. So I think we did well. I'm going to skip these slides and I'm going to skip these. And we saw something really unusual. President Biden and Vice President Harris endorsed candidates running for the Virginia Senate and they endorsed candidates, quite a number of them, running for the Virginia House. And these endorsements are pretty much statewide. Northern Virginia, Central Virginia, and Oceanside over in Hampton Roads. What I really wanted you to see, and this has to be of concern, is how incredibly expensive this race is. This is a Northern Virginia race. It's in Loudoun County. And this race is now over $11 million for a state Senate race. And now um, I do break everything down by how the early votes broke out. This race right now, you can see we are roughly 62% on the Dem side, 33% on the R side, and uh, 5.6% independent, but $11 million. This is Central Virginia. This race is over $10 million. And this race is in Hampton Roads. So literally all over the state, we are seeing these insane amount of money come in for these races. And now I, I always like to show this one. The most lopsided race in Virginia is partially down in Petersburg, Virginia, where we've got one candidate who's raised over $2.6 million running against a candidate that's raised 61000 So that is democracy at work, so you've got to enjoy it. Now, this is where life gets even crazier. These are house races. No more than 70,000 people in each district. This race is about $6 million. This is, again, technically it's in central Virginia, but the lines are blurring. It's now considered northern Virginia. And then... Hampton Roads, again, we are looking at a $6 million house raise. And then finally, the most, this one upsets me the most. This is a $6 million race in the poorest locality in all of Virginia, Petersburg, Virginia. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see how these numbers finally play out on Tuesday night. So no. thank you. I just wanted people to see this is what's going on in Virginia. Is there, uh, Andrea Miller, is there um, phone banking that you want people to do tonight? Are there places that people can plug into this election? 
um, um, yes. which is tomorrow. And I am going to give you our phone banks. What we have found is in the races that we were in, those are the races that tend to be leading in early voting because we push early voting and we push early voting really, really hard. In other races where we really didn't come in on those races, a lot of those races are literally at the bottom of the barrel in terms of early voting. We push early voting. So our phone banks have all been updated. They're election day phone banks. They're going to run tonight until 8 p.m. Tomorrow they come on at 9 a.m. and we're going to turn them up to 5. Okay, so are you posting uh, in the chat that where people can contact you to uh, do the phone, phone banking that's needed to uh, push the, the voting turnout? Oh, we keep phone banks right on our website, so no need to contact me. And when you scroll down, you will see a series of buttons. Each one of those buttons represents an area to phone bank, and every one of our scripts is customized for that area. Fantastic. Well, I had a, a great time uh, on one of your phone banks or um, an election. It was really, really exciting. Most of the time, you leave a, um, a we message. leave messages. We leave messages because what we found is the drop-off between people who only get messages versus voters we talk to is only about one and a half points. So we leave messages. Now, we are calling voters of color. And the really, really, really sad thing is we are still hearing from voters that we are the first and only contact they've gotten about this election. Campaigns are not contacting these voters of color. And the party is not contacting these voters of color. So these phone banks are very, very important. This could very well be the difference between getting voters out to vote and they don't know where to go. So they just stay home. Well, people, uh, I do encourage, please uh, uh, do your phone banking if you can for tonight and tomorrow. It makes a huge difference. I had a ton of fun. I had one phone call. I will never forget. I got a guy at a child care center and he was trying to be polite. And he kept interrupting our conversation by, no, no, don't do that. Don't hit her. <laughs> it was, I wish I had. it would be one of the classics on daytime television. But anyway, Andrea Miller, your work is just uh, absolutely spectacular. Uh, does anyone Thank want to you, have, Harvey. Anyone have a quick question for Andrea before we let her go? Um, all right, Andrea, thank you so much. Good luck tomorrow. There's also an election tomorrow in Maine. Uh, Kathy uh, Wolf is with us from uh, Portland and um, uh, the, the election in, in Maine. I'll, I'll let you go first, Andrea. Thank you so much. And, and please do, people. Uh, it's an experience you'll never forget. And we, we do need the phone banking. It makes a huge difference. Uh, Kathy Wolf in Maine. Uh, there is an election in Maine on the uh, Pine Tree Alliance, uh, whether or not uh, the uh, state is going to take over the utility industry in Maine. Um, uh, when, uh, uh, Kathy, do you want to, can you say a word or two for us 
uh, on the situation in Maine? I know you haven't I, been directly involved, but if you can give no, us I that. Haven't, I haven't been very involved, Slogo. Um, other stuff going on. Um, all, all I know is that the, um, the central Maine power, the, the, the existing utilities push just continues and continues. I saw something on YouTube the other day that they had placed there. I was just looking up a singer and this, this YouTube ad came up for uh, vote no on three. And um, which was okay. Well, I have seen reports that they've spent, the the utilities have spent a ton of money to defeat this. And um, 35 million is what I heard. $35 $35 million. <laughs> you know, it's it's insane. Anybody who doesn't think that Citizens United subverted our, our economy is not paying attention, our, our elections is not paying attention. Well, good luck in Maine uh, tomorrow as well. Uh, these are critical um, uh, elections. And of course, the punditocracy, which has nothing better to do, will t- uh, make every uh, point possible. Rick LaMonica, did you want to jump in, Rick? Uh, let's get you unmuted here. Uh, okay, there you go. I hope you're unmuted. I don't know where you are, but you no, know, you're not. Um, uh, I think before, I'm uh, unmuted. Yeah, right? go ahead. Go ahead, okay. Rick. I just want to say that there was a very good article on Citizen United and our uh, idiotic uh, corrupt senator from Missouri, Josh Hawley, on uh, common dreams. And... Um, it's written by Greg Coleridge, who oh, yes. uh, Greg's been on our was, was the uh, Friends Service Committee office in Ohio, and he's now working with Move to Amend. He's co-chair or something like that. Yes, yes, uh, yes. So uh, I recommend people look on it. It was written on the 5th, yesterday. <laughs> so... Uh, good, good, good. Well, citizens. Well, first of all, Greg has been on our calls. I've worked with Greg for years. He was in a, a Akron, and now he's moved to Cleveland, and um, uh, he is a, a mainstay of the uh, movement to repeal Citizens United. So uh, it's a very big deal. And um, I, I do want to thank you uh, for that, uh, Rick. I do want to say that uh, we're about to move in now. One of the great breakthroughs that we've made on these calls. Has to get to the has been to get to the labor movement, you know. It's been the it's the holy grail of the pro democracy movement in this country to uh, have the progressives make a deeper alliance, which with the labor movement, which has always been the fount of progressive politics in this country. And uh, thanks to Wendy Lieberman, we've been able to do that. Before we go there, I want to give the respect of Mary uh, uh, Butler Stonewall. If you can jump in very quickly and tell us what you got. Uh, and then we're going to move over to uh, talk to um, uh, the labor movement. Please, Mary. Yeah. Um, are you guys, I'm going to, this a little bit, uh, you know, when it comes to the nuclear. No, no, we're going to do the nuclear in the second hour. Can we do that? Right. Can you just, stick with us till the second hour? We're going to talk about nuclear in the second hour. Okay. Can you be with us in the second hour? Thank you, Mary. We appreciate it. Well, in the second hour, we're going to start with the nuclear situation in Georgia and deal with Illinois and uh, a few other major issues, including Diablo Canyon. Mary, it's always good to have you with us, and uh, please join us in the second hour. Kathy Wolf, thank you for being with us. Uh, Kathy was a founder of the Clamshell Alliance in the 1970s, 
and um, it made a huge difference uh, in nuclear policy as well. So, Kathy, I hope you can be with us. More so than Sluggo was. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, thank you, Kathy. Uh, so, Wendy Lederman, if you will introduce Patrick Crowley and Adam, um, we, we want to make this connection deeper uh, uh, with the labor movement. Uh, one of the surprising and one of the great surprising, one of the few powerful uh, positive surprises of the past few years has been the rise of a radical labor movement in this country, the likes of which we haven't seen for decades. Um, certainly not since the 1960s, and really in many ways since the 1930s. Uh, this is a very big deal. I will point out, as I always do, that the very first people that Hitler put in the, in the concentration camps, uh, specifically at Dachau, were the, the union organizers. You know, the, the thing Hitler hated the most was democracy. And he understood, um, as we do now, that the core of any industrial democracy is industrial unions. And we haven't been hearing from the unions for decades until the last few years. And, and for democracy, for getting people out to vote, no one ever got people out to vote uh, more effectively than the unions. And, um, and so here we are now. I actually went to school with uh, a relative of Walter Ruther at the University of Michigan. Were, Sluggo, uh, Sluggo well, we, only have te- we only have 10 minutes with Patrick, so can we circle back to Ruther? So, uh, we are, so Patrick, um, uh, I don't know if you went to the University of Michigan, but uh, let's, uh, let's hear it for uh, the labor movement uh, uh, right now, please. Well, thank you, Harvey. That was quite the uh, quite the way to be introduced. No, I'm a I'm a UMass Amherst guy, so oh. I'll stay on the East Coast. But yeah, so um, no, it's great to have an opportunity to talk about the intersection between the work that we're doing here in Rhode Island and uh, with the labor movement and the environmental movement. Back in 2021, we formed an organization called Climate Jobs Rhode Island, and it's grown into a coalition of 36 labor unions and environmental groups that are pushing for a pro-worker just transition to a green economy. We were instrumental in passing our Act on Climate, which is going to mandate that by 2050, the entire state will be carbon neutral. And we've passed a number of other different pieces of legislation working together with the labor movement and the environmental movement. And I think you'll appreciate this, Harvey, and your listeners will. You know, there was a, a lot of tension in Rhode Island between the green movement and the labor movement over some construction projects. But while this tension was uh, was going on, Rhode Island was building the first offshore wind farm in the nation right off the coast of Rhode Island by Block Island Sound. It was built 100% union, and it was really a first toehold into this type of work. But what we noticed was that there was still a large opportunity for us to work together. So by working to pass the Act on Climate, we really set the scaffolding for what the environmental and labor movement needs to do in Rhode Island. And since then, we've passed a number of other pieces of legislation to make make this a reality. So right now in Rhode Island, any project that the state is a market player in, so that's tax credits, direct payments, whatever the case may be, if it's over one megawatt, was essentially the size of a big house. <laughs> you have to use prevailing, you have to pay prevailing wages, you have to utilize apprentices, and there has to be a labor peace agreement. Now, one of the, the other thing that we did was we passed a law that says that by 2033, every elect all the electricity purchased within the state by our utility has to come from renewable sources. 
we by also win? Can, I'm sorry, by, by when? By, by 2033. It's the okay. it'll, it'll be the first. It's the first in the country to get to that 100% renewable energy standard. And I, I assume that'll include offshore wind. Offshore wind will be a, a critical part because the third element of what we did was we required the state to put a thousand megawatts, a gigawatt of offshore wind, into the the development pipeline. And when you really think about what we've done, is that when you think about you know an economy running on uh, supply and demand. We just legislated into existence the demand by saying the state has to purchase 100% of its energy from renewable sources. We legislated into existence the supply by saying that you have to have a gigawatt of offshore wind. Now, normally, the supply and demand is mediated by labor, and it's designed to drive labor costs down so profits can rise. By ensuring we have a base of prevailing wages, apprenticeship utilization, and labor peace agreements, any profits that are going to come out of this market into play have to come from innovation instead of exploitation. So that as we make sure that the next generation of union workers who are more likely going to be brown, black, and female are going to have the same wages and benefits that their white brethren have had over the last couple of generations. I mean, we're really talking about building an entire new economy from the worker up, and it's all going to be done on making sure that we have a carbon-free economy. Fantastic, fantastic. So yeah, you know that the landmark uh, agreement, uh, there, you know, there were supposed to be two nuclear plants in um, in Rhode Island, and we did stop them. And uh, the landmark agreement now to shut the Diablo Canyon reactors was done with organized labor. And there was a, a phase out uh, for the workers there. And of course, participation in the ongoing uh, renewables. You need to please look at that 2016 agreement to shut the Abwell and phase in uh, the the um, the labor uh, aspects of it. it sound, sounds beautiful. What you're doing uh, really sounds beautiful. You know, it's, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we're looking at is, you know, we've seen how other industries in this country have collapsed and the workers are thrown to the side. Mine workers, for example. You know, we want to make sure that as this legacy fuel industry starts to disappear. Those good paying jobs don't disappear with them. They just transition into other renewable sources. And one of the things that we've done to ensure that is we actually have the governor of Rhode Island, Dan McKee, has created a green energy workforce advisory board made up of, you know, state bureaucrats from the administration, six or seven labor union leaders, three or four community leaders. We've made sure that our indigenous tribal members have a seat at the table and that some of our environmental groups are there sitting right with labor leaders and the government to say, if we're going to make these changes, how do we make sure that people aren't left behind? Let me make a suggestion. The two biggest, uh, as you know, the two biggest uh, pieces of the renewable revolution, which are completely transforming the global economy far in advance of what we ever thought would happen, uh, are, are wind and solar. We need a union for wind workers and a union for solar workers. There are 70,000 solar workers in the state of California. They are not unionized. Mm -hmm. And there are 1,500 um, of workers at Diablo, and they're in the IBEW. So when it comes to the legislature, that IBEW kicks our butt, despite our having 70,000 workers, but our 70,000 workers are not unionized. Yeah, so one of the things that we've, we, we've been able to actually have the unions in Rhode Island, and I see my brother Aaron here with the team, says he can talk about this too. So 
the IBW local in Rhode Island has about a thousand members. 250 of them are working on renewable energy projects, primarily solar every single day. And in fact, they were instrumental in getting a law passed last year to make sure that we would no longer clear cut forests in order to build solar. We worked with the industry and with labor and the environments to make sure that our core forests, anything over 250 acres or more, would be protected and that any solar development would have to be in either you know disturbed sites, super fun sites, carports, et cetera, so that instead of ruining the environment in order to save it, it's the union workers that are making sure that the beautiful forests in the ocean state are protected, but we still have hundreds, if not soon to be thousands of people doing this type of work. Right. So it, uh, it's great they're in the IBEW, whoever they are, but if there is a dedicated national union for rooftop solar, it would it would be uh, uh, instantly one of the most powerful unions in the history of the country. Absolutely. There are more people working on so rooftop solar in California alone than there are digging coal in the whole United States. For mm -hmm. God's sakes, Aaron, jump in. I know your time is limited. Patrick, you guys define divided uh, how how you need. Uh, um, uh, but you know, this is fantastic. But if we can have a national solar union, even if it's part of the IBEW or whatever, and the National Wind Workers Union, and the National Battery Makers Union, you know, to, to reflect the changing economy uh, uh, of the world, it would be a, a huge, if we had, if we had, a, a so if the 70,000 solar workers in California were unionized, we would not be even talking about re keeping Diablo Canyon open. Well, one of, the, one of the dynamics of the labor movement right now is that we're focusing on bottom up. And I mean, part of the National Labor Relations Act and subsequent acts is, focuses on, you know, putting that onus on the workers in that industry. And that's where we create real leverage. Um, you know, it'd be really tough to start a top down campaign. However, you're talking about an exploited field of workers, you know, and they yeah. know. Um, so I think that, you know, you, you make good points. It's just you got to keep in mind that a top-down approach, um, it, it probably wouldn't work as well where, you know, having members organized worker to worker at the work site in their communities, like we're talking about here in Rhode Island, um, that was successful. That was successful. And I mean, you know, it, I'm the one that writes the agreements for my local. Um, and I just did the ones that affect uh, the offshore energy. And I can tell you right now, um, these, are, these are promising careers. You know, and and it has a distributive effect in our economy that, that makes us bargain for the common good. Um, and that's the key here is that, you know, everybody does better when we all do better. Well, listen, why don't we work together? I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm in the writers. <laughs> it's not exactly, uh, you know, the, the 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 blue collar job, but there's got to be a guide to a bottom up organizing for the renewable energy industry. Absolutely. This is I actually had I had a conversation with Ed Carlo in 1976. He was the head of the sheet metal workers union and they were enthusiastic about solar because they were doing HVAC. But, you know, there this is the giant hole in the transition. to renewable energy is the lack of unionization. And if it's got to be absolutely, it should be grassroots. You know, no doubt. Patrick. Adam, 
you know, Patrick, do you still have time to give us a closing statement before you have to go? Sure, I, 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 I got about, you know, I, I can I can I can definitely do that. Then I got to jump into a actually a transit organizing meeting. Uh, we're trying to make the entire bus service in Rhode Island free of charge. So I'm going into a meeting at our ATU local. But yeah, thank you. I mean, let me just I'll, I'll end with this. You know, this was not easy, obviously, but it just in crucial conversations. And I think you're right, Harvey, you know, you're seeing a new generation of labor leaders rise up into the ranks. You know, you've got people like Sean O'Brien at the teams. There's Sean Fain at uh, the UAW. Even, even Liz Schuler is in her early 50s. I've been the young guy in the labor movement for 30 years. And now, <laughs> I'm, starting, now I'm starting to see a lot more people, you know, younger 20s 30s 40s starting to take leadership roles and i think that's bringing a lot of the energy and i'm be you know so thanks for giving me a few minutes and i'd be happy Listen, to more about this with anyone you then come back I, i'm serious about this let's work and 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 and, and through the grip uh, uh calls and and or we have tremendous contacts on these calls as as adam knows um uh, we aaron uh aaron we we need to come with a, some kind of a strategy for organizing uh, from the bottom up right. the renewable Thanks, energy everyone. industry. It will be a, a game changer. So come back. Okay, I Patrick. Will. And thank, thank you. you, Wendy, for bringing him. Thank you, Mike, for keeping uh, tabs on us. Um, uh, Myla and then Tatanka. Myla, go ahead. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I well, when I heard uh, <clears throat> Patrick say carbon-free, that uh, puts up a lot of red flags for me because we know that the carbon-free myth about nuclear power is something that's used as a way of keeping a space for nuclear in uh, legislation and, and policies that we hope will exclude nuclear. So, uh, but I looked at Rhode Island and, I, and I'm wondering, there are no nuclear power plants in Rhode Island, but Aaron, do you know whether uh, Rhode Island imports any... Um, any electricity from nuclear power plants outside of the state? We actually have a huge offset project for renewables. Um, and in fact, there's been a ton of solar farms that have been growing uh, along with wind farms. Um, I think that if there's any reliance, it's it's completely evaporating quickly. Um, the state has gone through great initiatives along with neighboring Massachusetts on the border, um, at least on the border. To, to kind of get rid of not only the things that, you know, actually are nuclear powered and create radioactive waste, but things that look like it, even steam towers. Um, you know, we had a blight of a steam tower on the horizon and um, they demolished it just because of, most tourists didn't understand what a steam tower looked like. And, you know, we had a lot of people that would come through the area across the border, uh, right into Massachusetts, right there near Fall River. And think those were nuclear power, uh, you know, cooling uh, towers. Um, but I will say this: we we have a lot of stuff that passes through Rhode Island um, naturally because we're a corridor all the way to Boston. So one of the you know emphasis, one of the things that we emphasize rather um, is the safety on the highways. Um, you know, it, you can have an ecological disaster in a heartbeat. Um, so. You know, there are kind of known risks. Um, and as Patrick put it, you know, the policy aim here in this state um, is to get us onto uh, complete green energy as best we can. And then 100 um, percent right now, we're the first green job city in the country. Um, you know, we've made those resolutions and the appropriate, um, you know, 
governmental levels, and it's it's really cool to look into. Um, and it also ties into our credible strike threats that we do here. Because so I have a follow up. Oh, I'm just wondering when you were talking about your that your corridor and that radioactive material is coming through Rhode mm -hmm. Island, as far as you know, is that mostly fuel for nuclear reactors outside of your state or do you know can you do you have an idea of what that you I know mean, I, would, I would guess it's normal interstate you know hazardous uh waste um that's trucked and then through rail um it just depends on what it is uh, and how that intermodal transportation occurs um but we have heavy rail we have light rail we have you know uh, tons of trucks that come through Rhode Island every day and you know part of this emphasis has been because you know, Rhode Island's a small state, um, often disregarded in the lexicon of most people in a discussion about, you know, nationwide implications. Um, but because, you know, for years of just being treated like a truck stop um, for a lot of commerce, um, that's where you're seeing this reflexivity come from uh, and us reclaiming, I guess, our own um, common grounds uh, and their, you know, subsequent uh, greens if you would say. Well, let me just point out, uh, Aaron, uh, from the Teamsters, it's great to have you with us. I just looked at the, I saw a chart. Uh, by far the biggest uh, uh, growth in the renewable side has been in batteries. And uh, I'm wondering if the battery industry is unionized. Um, I will point out just for the record, there were two reactors scheduled to build at Jamesport in Rhode Island, and we stopped them. Or was it Charlestown? I think it was Charlestown, actually. Well, and don't forget, too, we had Sheldon that signed on to, you know, a uh, recent piece of legislation and supported efforts. Yeah, uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, it is, it, is a, it is an ongoing battle here, just like everywhere, you know. And, right. And there, there are no more nuclear plants in, in, in Massachusetts. Yankee Row was shut in 1992, and uh, Pilgrim was recently shut, although they're sitting at Pilgrim with thousands and thousands of gallons of radioactive liquid they want to pour into Cape Cod Bay. Uh, but, um, you know, Rhode Island is nuclear-free, or post-nuclear, we like to say. Um, we're going to talk to Tatanka. Then, uh, uh, Aaron, if you give us a um, a quick rundown on the, the rise of the strikes nationwide, that's a big deal. And then we're going to move on. It's great to see you with us. And we, I'm very serious. There needs to be a manifesto of um, for unionizing the renewable industry. I'll and, get to that. I'll get to that. Oh, you've already written it. <laughs> okay. To talk and then go ahead. We'll go back to Aaron. I know we're going to talk about this second hour. I'm not to go into it, but Aaron mentioned uh, offering a, a career to people in the transition. Um, I don't know if most of you know, when when I was working with Danny Sheehan, Sarah Nelson, the Romero Institute, along with the Dolores Huerta Foundation on Let's Green California, and the goal was to get to not carbon neutral, but carbon zero by 2030, we were actually we could promise 80% by 2030 and the rest by 2033. That was, and what was happening behind the scenes with IBEW is they understood very well that the nuclear jobs were going away and people wanted career jobs. And that was solar and batteries and wind. And they are perfectly positioned to do it. They were all for it. That was part of the plan that was going to happen when Gavin Newsom walked in right before the legis California legislature is gonna go to vacation and came down anti-solar and pro-nuclear and all the money flowed and everything happened. So we need to reverse. I mean, there's no question. We really need, we need to keep that plant closed and we need to reverse before Gavin fills in for Biden, if that happens, we need to get him on the right side of history. Thank you. 
Thank you. Uh, very well stated. We have 50 people with us. This is the Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition Zoom call. will be broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network, and we are live casting. And uh, we have with us uh, Aaron Wozniak from the um, uh, I just butchered your name, but I'm sure everybody does. Everybody does. It. <laughs> hey, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just, they just call me Aaron. Okay, uh, we call you Aaron. So, Aaron, um, you're with the Teamsters in, in Providence, Rhode Island, and um, uh, you're our great labor go-to guy, and it's really great to have the labor movement represented on these calls. Huge deal. Uh, so what else you got for us? What's, explain this rise, this historic rise in labor militancy. The, the strikes that have been going on have been incredibly successful nationwide. This is something I have not seen in my lifetime. You know, we used to talk about it in the 30s as a historian, but this the the rise of the labor movement has been astounding in the last couple of years. One of the few hopeful signs in the whole uh, American political scene. So tell us about it. Well, just like during the Depression and after World War II, people started to realize the value of their time during the pandemic and the value of time off and what it cost them to go to work. And that's just my opinion. But that was a large part of the discussion this last weekend at a recent conference. I uh, bumped into uh, Sean Fain from uh, UAW. Had a great conversation with him there. Um, got to hear him speak. Um, you know, UAW, that was an impressive stand-up strike strategy that they did. Uh, they sealed up all three with never-before-seen gains. I mean, it's just massive. Um, and this this rise uh, isn't, isn't so much a reaction as it is a growth um, within labor to continue to organize, but now organizing greater numbers. We've had a large focus this last decade, if you recall, um, going back to probably 2012, 2013, 2014, um, to take back local unions and and have the rank and file lead and um, control their unions and get away from company unionism, business unionism. Um, and what that has meant is that you have more involved uh, members. You have more militant shop floors that know how to respond in situations when management, you know, is management. So um, we're seeing a lot of interest. And in part, it's also a double down effort that we came to from the pandemic because many of us realized, you know, it was a once in a generation opportunity to reclaim a lot of our surplus labor value that we had lost, you know, decades, either from corruption or frankly, uh, NAFTA, um, all sorts of bad policy deals. Um, and the only real way that workers are seeing to absolutely get their demands heard is to take it to the streets. So I, I did a rundown here, um, in the chat, there's a guide for organizing. Um, it's released by the, uh, Teamsters for Dem Democratic Union. Um, it's a great guide on how to organize your shop floor. Um, there's a strike tracker from Cornell and right now there's a few hundred strikes going on, um, which I love. Um, I love the idea, and I think it's actually helpful for the community to be able to see wherever we have active strikes um, and then see the resolution. So let's talk about some of those resolutions. Portland Public Schools, um, you know, they were closed today because their teachers are on strike. Um, you know, and, and frankly, they've been given a go back to work order. Many haven't. Most aren't. And um, so the school district decided to begrudgingly, I guess, cut their benefits or something to that effect. Um, so their health care. Um, would have to be through COBRA, which is disgusting. It's disgusting that employers think that that little contribution trick or you're not paying your share of our premium um, is, is, is happening these days. 
uh, I'll skip forward a little bit to give you an example of a. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have to if you just get a couple more minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so really... a counter example to that is you know here in two fifty one we went on strike um, and you know so many times in the last years that we have incredible strike threats. We came to an amazing, uh, impressive deal with uh, with Bally's, the casino, for valets to finally receive for the first time in generations uh, pension and fully paid for health care. Um, you also have uh, AFA, flight attendants nationwide. Um, right now you have the uh, American Airline flight attendants threatening a strike. Um, the machinists also have uh, some actions going on at Boeing as they ramp up in their negotiations these the next several months um this is all this is all a derivative benefit really of efforts like this harvey grassroots organizing um and getting beyond just the protest movement right performative actions but getting to effective actions in our local communities um i think vermont for example with the uh, state utility and batteries there you know if you can see the connection with also needing right. to, as that workspace um, these are opportunities of growth. And I mean, people are taking notice of it. They really well, so are. So the Vermont, we had this discussion a while ago on the call, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Vermont, the Vermont utility is, is switching away from power lines to backup batteries. Mm -hmm. It's revo totally revolutionary. Now, how is the union and movement involved in that? Right. Well, you know, frankly, it's a, it's more of a, a matter of the workers that end up with that task. Are they union or not? And if they're not, do they want a union? Um, you can't really force a union on employers like that uh, from a union's perspective. You can trigger an election for a self-determination election through the democratic will of the workforce, and they have to be the ones to organize. What we've learned in the labor movement is that top-down methods do not work. They're not helpful. Um, and the only bottom-up way to do it is to go to those workers that are going to be working on those batteries. However, the state ends up um, pulling it through. My guess would be that they'll probably end up in some sort of deal to use electrical workers, but that has yet to be seen. Fantastic. Aaron, you're really great. It's really great to have you on on a regular basis. I'm, uh, I'm glad we had this discussion. Let's talk further if, there, if, there, if, it, if it's appropriate to have a green-oriented union unionizing guidebook of, of some kind to just promote it. Like I say, if the, the 70,000 solar workers in California were unionized, this in, in th this would be a different state. Well, and I, I think, think it really it's, also, it's also a lot like, you know, uh, a lot a lot of what we do in the labor movement. If you just build it, they will come. You start the meetings. You give them a space. Um, you know, my brother, Jay Ponte. He, oh, he yes. Well, is Jay with us here? Is Jay with us? Let's see if Jay he's Ponte, on. are you with us? I'm here. Yeah, Jay's with us. Okay, go ahead. Uh, we want uh, go. Uh, Aaron, do you mind handing the uh, baton over to Jay? Jay, go ahead, please. Jay. Yeah, shout out to my brother, uh, Aaron Wazlevic. Um, hey, you got his name right. <laughs> yeah, doing doing the work, you know, and uh, great to see you, Harvey. I, I remember always seeing you at Jan. Yes, we met. House. We met. Yeah, all the time. So you have a book out and you are, tell us about the book and the organizing. Yeah, thank you. It's called uh, Be the Revolution, How Occupy Wall Street and the Bernie Sanders Movement Reshaped American Politics. And it is it is sort of a, a recap of uh, the last 12 years, showing the through line from Occupy Wall Street all the way to Bernie uh, 2016, 2020, and the rise of the modern American labor movement. Uh, I wrote this because uh, for a number of reasons. One, 
Um, a lot of people think Bernie just went viral. They think he, you know, appealed to unrealistic millennials and he just came out of the free market. Not true at all. So uh, a, a lot of people also think that Occupy failed. Not true at all. So uh, the book shows how a group of Occupy activists in tandem with uh, Tim Carpenter and PDA bird dogged uh, Bernie around the country for two years and then um, activated the Occupy network before Bernie even ran, which you know basically pushed him to run and became the movement. It also differentiates the movement from the campaign, which I think is a very important. And it, you know, it covers a lot of ground. It's a it's a you know a theory of change. And uh, so covers- what is the what is the basic point of the book, and how does it relate to our green grassroots demo- grassroots democracy? Well, it's a great, it's quite crazy. So it covers a lot of ground. Um, it is a modern theory of change uh, that a lot of things have been talked about in this program. Uh, for instance, union, you know, the, the intersection of the climate movement and labor, for instance. The main point of the book is everybody's on the same team and everybody helps everybody. So that's the, you know, it's calling for a general theory of change, um, which hasn't yet pervaded our, our progressive leftist climate environmental labor movements. Um, you know, it talks about the tension between the rank and file and the top-down establishment and the labor movements, but really it shows the need for health justice, racial justice, labor, uh, economic justice to work together, uh, seeing how these issues are interlinked and we need more solidarity. Well, you're you're in LA, right? Yes. Well, so, uh, now, but yeah, mostly mostly it was my, my organizing base was LA. So uh, how about we get together and organize, find out from the local unions what needs to be done to, from the bottom up, organize the, the solar workforce into a union, into unions. Yeah, I'm, I'm, di- so part of the book is also a, a mission. We're doing trainings all over the country. So my focus right now what is- What kind of work- trainings? What kind of trainings are you doing? Yeah, it's a capacity building training where we're mostly targeting, we've already done it at USC. We did a Adam McKay's Hyper Object Industries, but we invite uh, local organizers for climate justice, racial justice, health justice, economic justice, undocumented justice, who are, who should be working together, but almost never are. Uh, to come together. We're, we're hopefully going to do mostly do it at the colleges because there's also very rarely a connective tissue between the college students and the local organizing. And then it's a, it's a leadership, it's a capacity building training. And uh, there's a, there's an overall modern theory of change because a lot of times most of our organizing strategies are still rooted in the sixties and seventies. They're very outdated. And which is why the fascists and neoliberals are winning. And uh, you know, we're not winning as much as we should. Okay. Um, uh, well, it makes sense to me, Jay, and I know you you got a lot of energy. You're a great organizer, um, and so uh, uh, again, uh, we we really need to move this uh, dial. Uh, we're 50 people. We're um, this is the Green Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Coalition. I'm so grateful to have the labor unions uh, represented here. It's it's never everybody always at these meetings say, oh yeah, we got to get the the Woikas. And uh, but they they don't. And now and now here we are uh, with this dilemma in California. I did quickly um, uh, um, wanted to uh, get to Wendy and uh, we want to talk and Jay stay stay with us. Aaron, is there anything else you want to add? I want to talk about Cop City a bit. We've only got 11 minutes before the top of the hour and we're having this horrible ongoing tragedy in, in Atlanta 
That yeah, Cop actually, yeah. I, uh, I moved up to New England from Atlanta. I'm very familiar with Cop City, and uh, yeah, it's. Uh, Wendy, do you want to give us an update on Cop City, please? Thank you. Um, I mean, no, I don't want to because it's so terrible what's going on there. But um, it is important to talk about. So thank you for discussing it. So um. There was an arraignment today for, um, I think, 61 of the activists that were um, charged with RICO suits um, for domestic terrorism. These are people that were handing out flyers or collecting bail money. Um, even one of them was apparently a legal observer and um, the public defender um, asked to have their, their charges dropped, but the state attorney who's bringing the charges refused. Um, all the judges keep recusing themselves, the lawyers, the prosecutors, like the district prosecutors are refusing to take the case. So in a, kind of a similarity to Donziger's case, how nobody would prosecute him. So the corporation was appointed here. The state attorney, who's like the top cop of the state, is taking the case because nobody else will. And it's just really not a common thing um, in the law. That's Chris Carr, and they expect him to want to run for the governor. Um, there's a lawsuit right now against um, the Atlanta Police Department by at least five Atlanta residents and one journalist for wrongful arrest during um, one of the protests because um, it was during the day that there was uh, about, I think there was like 500 over 500 people at City Hall the day that they passed to um, the city passed the lease um, agreement and it was like 17 hours of opposition testimony and people were arrested and um, just on bo bogus charges, as with everything. So um, Cop City, you know, it's what's really kind of a per uh, pertinent thing right now is that the, the cops, it's going to be modeled after like a village or an urban area. And they're being trained by the Israeli police force. And there's actually a very similar model in Gaza. And that's where their police that are suppressing Gazans. We're, we're, we're trained and that's what they're going to be doing to the Atlanta police and other places like Nashville, I think Pittsburgh, there's a couple other cities that there's some protests arising because there's um similar plans. There was recently um a kind of a, a mock because they've, they've already like the deal's not in yet. It's a $90 million deal. And after the referendum of collecting 100,000 signatures, they're still appealing it. They collected 110,000 and they needed 100,000 and the whole Democratic Party, the whole Democratic leadership of the city is just putting them through all these legal hurdles and like deflecting democracy at any given chance. But 50 acres of the forest, the sacred forest, that's a public park in a primarily black area, um, only 50 acres is left. They've already cleared the area. They've put up a big fence around it. And so um, there's going to be another action this week because everybody was um, kicked out of the forest. Obviously, one protester was shot 57 times um with his hands up um but they're going to be returning and having a mass mobilization they're, they've um switched their organization from um just within atlanta but they're actually traveling to other cities where there's stop cop city movements that are in solidarity and trying to recruit people to come to atlanta in a very similar way that the civil rights marches happened by bringing people from everywhere else and so of course there's like terrorism charges that are um like conspiracy charges that are, are being brought up for that but it's like the one method that they have and i read an interesting article on um, in truth out i'll have to find it and post it but they were saying how the tactics that are used against the cop city protesters could potentially be 
used against states with abortion restrictions for very similar reasons as the conspiracy and traveling state lines. So um, right now, uh, I think the the last I heard with the arraignments that happened today is that there are going to be hearings set for um, June, I believe, and people could face, some of them face 20 years in prison, some of them face much longer, like 35 years. And again, this is for like passing out flyers, for collecting bail funds. The flyers had the names of the cops that shot Tortuguita and murdered him, that the state is just, they dropped the investigation. They're not even looking into it. Um, and a, there's a huge mass movement happening, especially within the Black communities, because not only is this land in particular have a um, history with prison farms being there, this is an unincorporated Atlanta, but we just can assume that the repressive tactics and militarized tactics that the police will use will probably be first used in black communities because that's just what happens um mm. so we're watching closely and um everybody can support stop cop city the atlanta um press collective and just look look it up follow it on instagram donate what you can on um, their lawyer bills are topped like one hundred and forty thousand dollars. so um just just follow along and, and be vocal and show support however you can thank you harvey Oh, God, thank you. Thank you so much, Wendy. It's horribly depressing. Um, Mary and then uh, uh, Dorothy. Mary, quickly, please. And then Dorothy. Let's see here. Uh, okay, Mary. Mary Stonewall. And then uh, I'm trying. There. You're still muted. I'm trying to unmute. There. Yeah. Go ahead. I just want to say uh, I've been fighting this battle that you guys are all fighting for for many years myself since the 80s uh number one with the trying to keep unions strong um and number two with the the nuclear power and everything else first of all uh i hope you guys uh look into the uh, cl uh citizens climate lobbyist organization because they could be helping you with this nuclear problem that you're having in california um you okay. have chapters in your area you should get a hold of them and uh, number two, it, we need to have a caption, a statement on a shirt that basically says, if we can retool America to go to war, why can't we retool America to save our nation? Perfect. 100%. Because the, the, the big reason why they don't want to do all this stuff is they go, well, it's new and it's going to cost the, the American taxpayers and we'll have to retool everything. Well, retooling means more jobs. Absolutely. And the, the new technologies are much better. So if we can retool to blow up the planet, why can't we retool to save the planet? Totally with you, Mary. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. Right. And Take yeah, care. get a hold of those climate guys. All right. We appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Dorothy Wright. Um, yeah. All right. I find it interesting that Reverend Warnock is nowhere to be seen. In this uh, in this fight for against Cop City, uh, also it, uh, Nina Turner is just starting a new labor organization to support organized labor, and I said to her, and I'll say to everybody that I think the big difference is that we're getting some uh, some good leadership, and that I told her, and I tell everybody that we need to be sure that when we're supporting a union, that we make sure that they get good leadership because that is of utmost importance that's why we, the unions have been failing because they haven't they haven't been they haven't had good leadership they've had leadership that was in cahoots with the the owners of the companies 
and you can't get a good contract when you don't have a good leader. Because we uh, saw with uh, Sean Fain. Agree with you that, on that totally, yeah. Um, Aaron and Jay, do you want to comment on that from Dor the great Dorothy uh, Reich here? Um, and hey, you said my favorite name, Tim Carpenter, so Presente. Um, I, I knew Tim. I was with PDA early on, and we miss him dearly. And he it was on his deathbed. He was still collecting signatures. Run, Bernie, run, as a Democrat. Yep, the story's in the book. But in terms of labor, I will defer to my brother, my comrade, Aaron. Aaron, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that um, uh, we're, we're making efforts to really get um, you know, if you look at the reform movements that have happened for transparency and accountability within our own unions, it's it's really the members having to take it back and then having to have the tools uh, to take back their unions. Um, and, you know, let's face it, there was a period, you know, kind of in the 60s and 70s where the lore of uh, old school unions taken from workers was was uh, highly uh, under <clears throat> suspicion. Um, right. But I, I will say this new leadership in the labor movement, these new leaders that have developed are some of the most honest individuals I've ever seen uh, in leadership. And they're some of the most galvanizing. Uh, we're talking about people with real fire in your belly. They're not looking to give concessions. They're looking to fight the boss for asking for a dime back. Um, and that's a historical uh, you know, reversal um, of what we've seen for the past 30 years, um, you know, all the way from Reagan forward, maybe 40 years, but um, oh, goes you know, back you further. Of, you had a lot of givebacks, a whole lot of givebacks for a whole bunch of nothing. Um, and <laughs> we've all taken a pretty adamant stance with our with our members at the table doing the bargaining um, that will support our members and their will. Um, and it's a fiduciary duty we hold to do what we can to the best interest of them, to the exclusion of all others. So, you know, in the in the local unions that run like we do. Um, and in the you know larger unions that also are, are going through reform changes, you're seeing interest and involvement through the roof, engagement like we've never seen before. Meetings uh, like it used to be back in the 50s and 60s. I mean, packed halls, people are caring, um, and they're also engaging in a lot of these social issues that are kind of outside the ambit of just a union. But um, you know, they're informed that way. Um, so we're we're seeing a rekindling of that unity and that solidarity at the workshop floor. Um, but it, it has everything to do with the fact that a lot is on the line. Um, and this is our only opportunity as workers to plug into all these different efforts and um, kind of steer them to the benefit of all uh, in the working class, not just the 1%. Fantastic. Well, you know, it was a lot of damage done in the 60s by the, the most aptly named union leader ever, uh, George Meany. He was such a jerk. And, you know, he was the head of the AFL and he was pro-war and, you know, hated hippies. I mean, if you ever wanted to, to alienate the progressive left from the unionized left, George Meany was the guy who did it. He was right out of the CIA. And I, I think we've, you know, overcome that finally. And uh, here we are. So um, um, this is in incredibly encouraging. And, I mean, uh, I, wish, I honestly wish more people discussed the Solidarity Center efforts and everything that happened back then. Uh, I think that it would be illustrative for um, our movement to recall um, the efforts that um, state actors do go through to incur and affect and then uh, overall try to co-opt our cause. Yes. And, 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 and you guys, I, I want to 
keep doing this on the Greep. If there are other union people that you want to bring on, Aaron, um, including Sean Fain, um, you know, uh, it would be great. And, and we can make this a center for um, helping whatever progressive movements are necessary and making the connections for you guys with the rest of uh, who, who we bring in. Uh, we really want to do that. And, and Wendy is a great vortex for that. And um, and, and we'll, we'll continue to do that, please. So any union people that you want to bring on, well, like it's also know. interesting to know the bisection here, right? Like, because we're not just talking about members taking back their unions. We're talking about community involvement, right? Like the the double down on social negotiations, and I I do think it's important to to reiterate that that wasn't corollary with um, Occupy. That was a causal effect of Occupy. And many of the people that are out here in these communities organizing um, were some of the pillars of the Occupy movement in our communities, um, right? And, 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 and we're also at the forefront of the new economy. The new economy is defined. Defi we're not just talking hippie uh, solar panels here. The new economy is defined by solar, wind, batteries, efficiency, um, and, 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 and microgrids and all that stuff. And so if the union movement can be integrated from the bottom up, with the new technologies and make sure that that workforce is unionized, we've got a whole new world at our feet here. I mean, so, we're organizing harder and we're bargaining smarter than we've ever done before. And we're seeing contracts gains like, like you've never. Right. And, and, like before deregulation. And it's amazing. And as, as I said, get, um, as, as a vet of the, the movement of the green movement since the seventies, you know, the, the missing link has always been labor. And here we are. Uh, Jay Ponte, you're shaking. Then we're going to go to an incredibly important fight. We're, we're joined um, uh, here uh, uh, on the Georgia front. This is an amazing uh, battle that everybody has to understand um, in Georgia. They have just they are just bringing on the two atomic reactors, which were which Obama uh, seeded with um, um, uh, interest free federal loans in Georgia. Uh, back in 2007, and Patty Durand is with us here, and I'm going to let Jay get in a word, and then we'll go to Patty, uh, but uh, you guys need to hear this. Uh, the, you couldn't make this stuff up. So, mm -hmm. uh, 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 Jay, uh, if you'll give us a word, and then we're going sure, to go sure. to Patty. Thanks. Thanks, thanks, Lago. Uh, yeah, actually, my conversations with Aaron were actually really insightful, um, showing how you know, people think Occupy failed, Bernie failed, but showing that there is a through line, a lineage, and all of those, like, we weren't defeated. We were, we, they thought they buried us, but we were really seeds. And that's, that strain is still going. And it also, we talk about with vis-a-vis -vis Cop City, how this is the emergence of, it's so important for people to understand what I call the corporate state, is you have the intersection of government officials, corporate special interests, the police state being propped up by the corporate media to maintain the hegemony of the ruling class. And people really, we saw this at Standing Rock. We, and, and, you know, Tortuguita Manuel was, was murdered, executed because of this. And guess what? At the top, uh, the, you know, the, the police foundation's board members, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, AT&T, Amazon, you know, and it's K, KPMG. It's all the same. It's all the same thing. So, uh, be the revolution.us. There's a free bonus chapter and you can also, um, you can also, uh, purchase the book at various places there. Jay, thank you. Great to have you, Aaron. Stay with us both. 
you please, if you can, I want to introduce you to Patty Duran now. Um, uh, the the, the uh, overview in Georgia is, you, I, as I said, Obama put out a, an $8.3 billion um, a federal loan, no no uh, interest loan, to build two reactors at Volcker. There are there are already two there. Well, one or two, Patty. I think there were two. Well, there's two there now, and we're adding two, so it'll be the largest right. set of reactors in the country. So the two biggest, the two reactors at Volkel, uh, the new ones were started with Obama's money, his so-called <laughs> all of the above energy strategy, Kraka, you know, and 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 then um, they then uh, uh, Trump kicked in another two point seven, so the. Federal money came to 13 billion in interest-free federal loans. They said the reactors would come in around, I don't know, 15, 16 billion dollars. We're now close to 40, 40 billion dollars for two atomic reactors that will never work properly. They'll never even come. They're they're three, four, five times more expensive per kilowatt hour than renewables. And um, and unit the, the unit three, I guess, has just come online. Unit four is about to come online. And here's the minor problem they face. How are they going to pay for this? The Public Service Commission has to decide how the charges for this $40 billion catastrophe are going to be distributed. And Patty, I, my understanding is there are two vacancies. Now, we did have... Uh, a couple of years ago, we had a gentleman who was running for the PSC, and they did everything to sabotage his campaign. And now you are a candidate for the PSC. So uh, this is Patty Dumont, Durand, D-U-A-R-N-D, and she is a candidate for the Public Service Commission in the state of Georgia. No one ever used to pay any attention to the raises to the service commission until they come up with a $40 billion price tag to figure out who they're going to stick with it. So Patty, can you please introduce yourself and tell us what's going on here? Absolutely. Yep. Um, so I've been running for public service commission since 2021. So going on three years now, there was a lawsuit. Um, there was a lot of litigation Last year, they tried to disqualify me from the race by moving the county I lived in out of the district that I was required to be in to run for office. And I litigated that. My lawyer found um, texts between my opponent and the Public Service Commission chair where he gave her my address, which was used to disqualify me. So we um, showed that to the judge, and also I turned it over to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They published the text, which was pretty fun, um, and I won that case, and I was uh, able to remain in the race, and I won the primary. Um, in addition to my lawsuit, there, were, there was a lawsuit filed by four Black plaintiffs alleging that the way the elections are held are racist because the elections are statewide, even though candidates must live in a district and supposedly represent a district everybody in the state can vote in that district, thereby, you know, diluting the black vote with white conservatives who inevitably elect Republicans. And that case went to um, went to a hearing and the federal judge ruled in their favor that the elections were racist and the state had to change the vote to be to be district wide. 
And then the state appealed and they said, oh, no, we're not racist. We just want Republicans to win. And that's not illegal. And so that appeal put the election on hold, which is why I'm still a candidate now a year later. Um, meanwhile, Plant Vogel Unit 3 went online, as Harvey said, in August. I think it was August 30th. <clears throat> no, it was July 30th. Um, and then Georgia Public Service Commission has this very, um, well, I'll just call it corrupt procedure that they call a stipulated agreement, but is really a backroom deal where the staff, the PSC staff sits down with Georgia Power behind closed doors. It's not public. They did invite hand-selected nonprofits. Sometimes they don't have any interveners and nonprofits at the table. Sometimes they have hand-selected ones. And they had two hand-selected nonprofits at the table and a month after Unit 3 went live on August 30th, this published, this stipulated agreement was published. And the stipulated agreement is that Georgia Power wants $7.56 billion for their share, their 45.7% share of the, of the cost to construct, not concluding financing, the cost to construct the units. And then the other 53% would be the remainder of 30, I think I think we've documented 35 to 37 billion, but of course costs continue, so it probably will be 40 billion. Um, that'll be spread across the people of Georgia. And um, so that how is- many How many people are there in Georgia? Well, so I can only answer, so Georgia Power has 2.7 million customers, so the 10 billion will be spread across well, so it's $7.56 billion plus by the time they add financing, the amount, the rate base is going to increase is going to be $11 billion spread across 2.7 million Georgia Power customers. Uh -huh. The other 53% of the remainder of the $35 billion that's been documented so far will be spread among the remaining, and I don't know how many households, I mean, there are 11 million people in the state, but I don't know how many households there are. Those are spread among EMCs, you know, electric membership cooperatives and munis. And there's just a lot of secrecy there on how much their bills are going to go up. Their bills will go up more than our bills, though, which our bills are already going up a lot because um, we've already paid $1,000 in upfront financing, you know, early financing costs. And now we've got to pay for 60 years. Our bills are going to go up about 10% across the board for a grossly tiny amount of energy, seven. So the rate base is expanding 46%, which is a huge gift for, for Georgia Power. That's an enormous expansion of the amount, for those of you that don't, might not know what a rate base is, it's the total value of their assets that they get to make a profit on, return on equity on. And that expansion will deliver Georgia Power about $800 million a year just in profits. Oh. And so what, if, what, you're, what, if you're on the PSC, I want to make sure people understand what you're running for a seat at the table that's going to have access to all this data and who's going to make the decisions on who has to pay. Is that correct? Well, uh, I, that would be the ideal case, but it's not going to happen that way because Georgia Power is not going to allow it to happen that way. So the what's going to happen is the vote is scheduled for December 19th. The hearings are scheduled for December 4th, 5th, and 6th, where they will have experts come in and talk. 
but no, they're not going to pay any attention to those experts any more than they've ever paid any attention to experts. They didn't pay attention to them in 2017 when Westinghouse went bankrupt and they authorized the continuation of Plant Vogel with no cost cap and no customer protections. I mean, who does that? Have you ever had a house built or had anything built? Imagine telling the builder, just whatever it takes, just go ahead and build it. Doesn't matter. That's what they did. It's it's horrible what they've done. Anyway, um, so the way it's going to work is there'll be hearings in early December, and then the vote is scheduled for December 19th. So there's no way an election could take place before that vote would happen. Even if the appeal was ruled on next week, which it is expected to be ruled on next week, um, the election will not impact the vote for Plant Vogel's costs. So, so I guess what I wanted to share with everyone is this is the most expensive power plant ever built on Earth at 35 billion, whether it's 35 or 40, it's already the most expensive power plant built on Earth. The cost of electricity is the most expensive electricity ever produced. It's, it's going to be 170 to 100, $180 a megawatt hour, which I know might not mean much to people not in the energy industry, but it is wildly more expensive than the next closest thing, which um, Harvey mentioned is four to six times more expensive than renewables. And, you know, there's just so much that's wrong with this plant, this whole structure, the way it was approved, the way that Georgia Power has blocked affordable solutions. We live in a modern era with digital capabilities and distributed generation is the future of the grid where people can be engaged and involved with rooftop solar and electric vehicles and battery storage, smart thermostats and connected home and all the things that, ha that have already happened and are coming demand response, virtual power plants. I mean, I could go on. There's a whole host of solutions that are very affordable, that are zero carbon, that are blocked in Georgia because Georgia Power doesn't want them because they don't make a profit off of them. And that's the reason I'm running. So I can't stop this vote. We know it's going to happen. It's most, more than likely going, 99.9% .9 going to be approved. And then the window is closed on that part of Plant Vogel's story. So then the next step is, what are we going to do to make sure that Vogel is seen as a failure and a catastrophe and not a success? Because the Southern Company PR machine and the commissioners themselves and DOE are all going to do a lot of spin and have already started spin that, oh, this is great for Georgia. Look at the leadership we're showing with nuclear. We can still build things. We're going to have carbon-free electricity for decades and decades. It's going to be so cheap. All those things are either lies or mistruths. So I'm working with a small team of people, including Glenn Carroll, who put me on with you in this group, to publish a report um, in December, if we can pull it off, that is going to have four sections that are going to expose the truth about Plant Vogel that we are hoping to get national attention on so that some of this rush to small modular reactors and some of the kudos and congratulations coming to Georgia's way would be seen, you know, would not be seen as a success that we have the truth out there. So we're working on that um, pretty hard. Fantastic. Now, if, if when is the election 
for the public service. The election has not been scheduled because the appeals court has not ruled, which I believe there's corruption involved in that too. Last December, so the ruling, the initial ruling in the plaintiff's favor was last June, June of 22. Then in August, there were motions and fights over whether or not the election would be stayed. We were only 80 days out last August to the November vote. And the last word on several back and forth rulings was that the election would be votes would be removed from the ballot while the appeal was being heard. The appeal was heard December 14th, 2022, and both sides asked the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to expedite their ruling because elections are time sensitive and they agreed or seemed to agree. But here we are 11 months later with no ruling. And I can't help but think that those judges are waiting for Georgia Power to get their Vogel billions before they issue a ruling or they issue it so late that, which is already too late. They issue it so late that an election can't be scheduled before the vote. That well, I just, It doesn't make sense that like I've asked my lawyer, like, do judges not have to work? Do they just be like, hey, man, I've got an afternoon off. Let me go golf. Like, why aren't they issuing this ruling? Is there no responsibility to issue a ruling? They just can just not do it. But and that's what they've done. They've just not. So there's been no election, no election scheduled. We're all just in a waiting. So last week, Glenn Carroll and um, a woman from Georgia Wand, a woman named Ken Scott, issued a petition of abeyance, asking the commission to delay their vote in December until elections can be held because two commissioner seats are expired and should not be voting. And that got- uh, Are there five commissioners? How many commissioners? Yeah. I mean, there, with- it, So with two, that, of the, two of the five seats on the commission are empty? Well, the judge, the initial judge's ruling said those commissioners could remain as holdovers. Oh. So they have retained their seats. But, you know, this is uncharted territory. One of them was appointed and has never been elected and his seat expired. How can a judge say it didn't expire? It expired. And the other opponent, the other can't, sorry, the other commissioner is my opponent. And then into 2024, we have a third commissioner coming up for election. And if the elections are changed to districts from statewide, which is what the federal judge ruled would make it less, would make the racism, you know, relief for the racism. Then, uh, then I don't know, then are all five seats up? Like nobody knows because the, this is new ground for Georgia, for, for anybody. This is all new. And so uh, the petition for abeyance was to say, look, this is all new. We don't have a ruling. Nobody knows what's going on. You guys shouldn't be voting in the largest rate increase in the history of the state. We've already waited seven years on these reactors. You said they'd be delivered in 2016 as 2023. What's the deal with waiting another year? Plus, they're not even done. Unit four is not even done. So why do we have to have a vote in December? We don't. So we ask you not to. And so they filed that petition. And then Glenn Carroll presented it at the Energy Subcommittee meeting Thursday. And it got 18 media hits. It got so much traction. We were just thrilled. We had no idea that it would get that much attention. So this is a hugely important story. It's very important. Everybody understands the (laughs) the global implications of this story. These are the last two big reactors that will ever be built in the United States. These these plants are such a catastrophe that they are the well, (laughs) compared to the two in South Carolina, 
when they spent $9 billion digging a hole in the ground, bankrupting Westinghouse along with the two at Volkville, and then nothing. They're just sitting there. $9 billion, more than the Webb telescope, for God's sakes. And, and, And here you have these two in Georgia, $40 billion. The industry does not want, you know, uh, they're going to yell and jump up and down how wonderful it is if they come yeah, on. Yeah, they out. already are. But they, they're not telling you what they're costing. And yeah, um, well, let me just say um, a couple of things. One is the, the T is silent. Just I guess it's a French name, so it's Vogel. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is there is a lot of, of congrats, self-congratulation the commissioners are giving themselves and DOE is praising them and, of course, Southern Company. And so there is, I'm sure you all know, there is a big move to looking at nuclear as a solution to climate change and to looking at small modular reactors. And in fact, there was an essay in South Carolina about the $9 billion hole in the ground where after Unit 3 went live, um, there was an essayist that said, oh, look at Georgia, they've got something for their money. Well, we've got nothing for ours. You know, good job, South Carolina, you idiots kind of and so I, I asked the editor if I could publish an essay in response to that. And he said, yes. And I've had a lot of success. I've got one published last weekend in Winston-Salem. I've had asks out to Virginia and Illinois, because what I think I bring to the table is I'm from Georgia. I work in energy. I'm very familiar with these plants and the fiasco and the harm they're doing. I know how much they cost. And I'm offering warnings to the people in these states that, don't let these lies and the thieving nuclear industry boondoggle your state, your city, your your municipal utility, whatever it is, with their pretense that they can get nuclear right this time. They said that to us, too. They said it would be on time and on budget. And now we're $18 billion over budget and all the risk is on us, the captive ratepayer. I mean, there's no... You can talk about capitalism and loving capitalism, which I don't. But if you did, you surely can't love what the corporate state, as your previous speaker called it, which I love. Um, You can't love the monopoly power that is brought to bear on something that would never happen in a competitive, normal marketplace. Only a captive, a, 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 a commission and regulatory capture with customers who are captive to a monopoly utility would ever be forced to pay for something like this. It's really disgusting and corrupt. And I want other states to know, don't follow our road because the spin they're giving you is just spin. And so I've gotten some essays published working on that report I mentioned. We're gonna hire a PR firm to get it placed to make sure it gets big traction. And we're gonna have our own public um, relations effort whenever Unit 4 gets done, probably I was speaking to someone today that thinks President Biden or Senator Granholm will come to Georgia to celebrate it. And yeah, you know, you talked about Biden offering all this money and then Trump, like support for nuclear power is bipartisan. It doesn't matter what president is in office. They are going to, until we have campaign finance reform, they are going to always push for nuclear and give gargantuan sums of money to do it. It's insane. This would be a great Carl Grossman, uh, one of our great um, uh, nuclear journalists, is on the line, and he would be a great one for you to talk to, Patty. If you will send him and me all the all the uh, information about this, 
Carl has done great writing about nuclear. The Shoreham boondog, where you want to look into what happened at Shoreham. Where well, they... I, I also want to share with everyone that Georgia Power has for decades delivered false claims of, of uh, capacity needs and capacity growth. That's why we needed Plant Vogel. And I charted how, how much they said they needed for growth and then how much the growth actually was. And they are so far apart. The 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 tiers of this is this is the minimum we might need. That's the maximum. You know, it's a range. Doesn't the lowest end doesn't even touch what what they claimed. And from 2007 to 2022, 15 years, George Bauer had zero capacity growth, zero sales growth. They they made Georgia. They're, they're making us pay $35 billion, or it might be closer to 40 when it's done, for a plant for growth that didn't even happen. All of it was a lie. All of it was false. And now they're claiming more growth. And no one is questioning the fact that all their previous estimates were wrong. And the Public Service Commission filings, you know, the commission assigned um, independent monitors. They're called independent construction monitors. VCM for Vogue Construction Monitors, and they file the most damning, unbelievable reports that nobody reads because who goes on to a Public Service Commission website and pulls filings? Well, I do. And those reports talk about that for 13 years, Southern Nuclear, depending on, you know, these different terms, Southern Nuclear, Georgia Power filed materially inaccurate, which is another word for saying lying, a, a, a professional way to say lying materially inaccurate cost and schedule estimates to justify building and continuing to build plant vocal. And nobody, I mean, that's corruption in plain sight. And nobody, nobody sets crickets in Georgia. Like there's all these scandals in Illinois, Ohio, South Carolina. We can't get any scandals here. It's so frustrating because it's, it's corruption in plain sight. And it just drives me crazy. Well, you you are a great treasure, Patty. It's incredibly great to have you on. Thank Glenn for having you on and getting us connected. Uh, it's really fantastic. And uh, uh, and beyond, you know, you couldn't make this up. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and these are the guys who bankrupted Westinghouse. Yeah, and Westinghouse, Westinghouse, Westinghouse keeps co coming alive like, like a vampire. They're back now. They're actually building AP-1000s the failed technology in Georgia, in Poland. Westinghouse right. is in Poland. But I'm like, what? what? How can anyone trust them? What AP 1000? DOE is helping fund that? Our tax money is going there? Wow. That's ridiculous. It, well, let's, let's jump over. We've got, we've got some people. I hope you can stick with us. Uh, I don't see uh, Kevin Camps or the other, or, or um, uh, there was someone who was supposed to come on from Illinois to, but we let, let's continue this. And if you're the guy from Illinois, I don't see uh, Dave Kraft. Um, uh, let us know. And I'm sure this all sounds very familiar to Carl Grossman, who did the great reporting on Shoreham. And someone's uh, to, got their hand up. Did you want to call on? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, Tatanka, anyone? Lynn, Dorothy, and Steve. Uh, Tatanka, go ahead, then Lynn. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Carl weighing in because, oh, great. He's going to be in here. Thank you, Patty Duran, for the work you're doing. And 
I don't have solutions. It's just these 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 phrases come up that you probably use them all. You know, no taxation without representation. Too corrupt to fail. <laughs> like that if, one. You like that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and we we get we, we pay fifteen about fifteen hundred dollars per customer, and what do you get for being screwed? Double screwed, the largest rate increase in history of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's thirteen years materially inaccurate costs and and the the tactic of delay, delay, delay. You know, delay. well, it's even worse than that because the state public service commission has barely penalized Georgia Power for the delays. Like like we already have the highest ROE in the country at 10.5%. And that's not the actual number because there's a range they can make above and they always do. And every delay they have, they continue to make profits on. They made more profits on the delays than if they had delivered at on time. So they were incented to be late and over budget. There was no penalty. It was, it was- and, and you are what you're doing. I mean, this is endemic to every most every utility in the country, unless you have a solution like a community owned or a publicly owned utility. We need to move to that. There doesn't yeah. seem to be any <clears throat> argument once we get the, the too corrupt to fail, you know, out there and everybody can research their own. And in California, we're we're victim to the same thing. We're trying to figure it out. Different situation, but same same tactics. And we also have to really do education to get to the root of this whole, you know, nuclear joining green. It's it's just so insidious. Right. Well, I don't think there I don't think there's a serious threat than any well, there will is, but I think we can handle any threat to build any big new nuclear plants. I think the Volcal um uh, BC summer experience in South Carolina and Georgia I mean, come on, you know, a nine billion dollar. The problem is that, you know, the utilities are looking at red ink because they've never solved the waste issue. They're at the end of it. They're embrittled. They've got this big red ink to look at. And what do they do? They're getting billions and billions of dollars for being too corrupt to fail and to kick the can down the road at a time when we may not have any resources and we might be you know, overcome by whatever, you know, climate change, earthquakes, everything. And so it it really demands attention. But there's a whole bigger picture that could probably unite, unite the country. Let me weigh in on the, um, the the $9 billion hole in my essay to the South people of South Carolina. They, you know, that is a perfect example of sunk cost fallacy. You know, Commissioner Eccles in particular, my opponent, is a a victim of that or else he's um, willfully ignorant. It could be that. But just because you spent nine billion and I'm saying you said that I know I know you're not saying this, but just because you spent nine billion dollars doesn't mean you should continue when it's clear that the original cost estimate was wildly off. They did the right thing. They're better off having a nine billion dollar cost than a thirty five billion dollar boondoggle. So, right. you know, you could then and, and now they have among the lowest bills in the country, among the highest uh, penetration of rooftop solar, whereas we're in 46th place, like they passed clean energy legislation. They've done so much in the years since they canceled plant summer 
while we slog along with the highest electricity bills rates in the country. Right. And I saw a, a chat come up. Will, will, will companies not come to Georgia because of the high price of electricity? So the industrial class, because they have lobbyists, their rates are below the national average. Their rates are quite low at nine cents a kilowatt hour. Whereas the residential class, we're the ones carrying all the burden of these plants because we don't have any lobbyists at the commission. We're one of only four states with no consumer utility council. Every state understands the need for consumers to have representation during rate proceedings. They're complicated, they're expensive, they're lengthy. You need to have dedicated professionals who understand utility financing and utility regulatory structure. And so you have advocates, state, most states do, but not Georgia because we defunded ours in 2008 during the Great Recession. And so, and that coincidentally is the year after when Plant Vogel got the green light with no cost caps and no customer protections. We had no advocate. So we, residential customers, are paying off for Plant Vogel and industrials will pay a little bit. But no, that that's one of the reasons Georgia is considered such a business friendly state is because business rates are quite low. Well, let me let me uh, uh, call. I want I want to introduce you very quickly, if you don't know him already. The, the great Dave Kraft is on with us. Uh, Dave Kraft from Illinois and one of the true mainstays of the what, what, did you disappear on me, Dave? I see him. He's there. Uh, okay, Dave Kraft, uh, uh, unmute and 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 say hi. We're going to call. We have three people with hands, uh, but I wanted to make sure I introduce Dave, who's going to fill us in on what's happening in in Illinois. Dave, are you there? Hear me? Oh, there, there you are. You're unmuted. Go ahead, Dave Kraft. Thank you, Harvey, and my condolences to you, Patty. It's uh, thank you. A hell of a fight. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. It is horrible. Well, we it's actually hard. have a situation in Illinois where. A governor is trying to do the right thing, which is astounding. I, I can't overestimate the power of Dave Kraft. He's one of the truly great, along with Carl, one of the truly great uh, activists on the on the safe energy front for decades. So, wow. Dave, let me just get Lynn, Dorothy, and, and Steve, and then we'll come to you. Okay? Yeah. And, Patty, I hope you can stick with us. You're yeah. a fabulous, fabulous um, a participant. It's really great to have Thanks. you with us. Lynn Feinerman, go ahead. Then Dorothy, then Steve. Yes. Um, hi, Patty Durand. I have a question and I may not have been paying entire attention. So sure. what I'm what I'm really um, concerned about is, is, is there any way to stop these plants? You have hurricane season. You know, it's getting worse and worse every year. Is there no climate consciousness about the dangers of even just hurricane season? Uh, along well, Georgia's and South Carolina's coast? No, my understanding is they're built to withstand hurricanes. Um, but anyway, the plant, Unit 3 is already live. Unit 4 has already had the fuel load. The, there's no stopping them. There's only accountability and backlash at this point. And that's what I'm trying to gin up. Also, regarding Illinois, um, you know, North Carolina had some pretty great clean energy legislation. Um, their goal, their, their legislation was renewables, was defined as what was clean energy, and their governor was overruled recently from the legislature. Governor Roy Cooper vetoed the change to defining their energy from, clean, from renewables to clean, and that would allow Duke Energy to pursue small modular reactors. And that was the news that I asked if I could publish an essay about 
warning them not to do this. And I did that did publish this weekend. But so it's not only Illinois governor that's trying to do the right thing. North Carolina's governor tried too and failed because his veto was overridden by the conservative legislature. Unfortunately, it's a gerrymandered legislature, not just conservative. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Lynn. Much appreciated on that. Uh, Dorothy Reich and then Steve Kaiser, and then we're going to go to uh, So try to speak softly. Um, I was just wondering, have you thought about contacting like ProPublica or um, what's the other one? ProPublica. ProPublica. Does in-depth investigations of this, and when they do it, they get a lot of publicity about it. They get it all over yeah. everything. They look into it if you can get to them. I did. Uh, I did get to them. Well, I got to one guy. I think his name was Max something. Um, anyway, um, yeah, they they declined to write on it, and they were busy with um, all the book banning and the Moms for Liberty, and I couldn't get them off of that. I could try again though. What about Joe Lagoon at uh, at um, Popular Info? I don't know that person, so it'd be great if you could. Well, put we'll it get in you chat. around. Send us your stuff. You can get some of the investigative people, but what's the other one? The one that um, that did the thing on the TPP. What's the name of that? Why can't I remember? Why can't I remember that? All right, we'll get it. We'll get it. Uh, uh, Patty, uh, Dorothy, put your contacts in the chat for Patty. Please, and she'll send us stuff. Patty, you're great. Uh, Steve, thank you, Dorothy. Anything else? Uh, uh, we can send it to Down with Tyranny. That's always a help. Uh, Steve Kaiser, go ahead, Steve. And then uh, and then we'll go to uh, um, uh, Dave Kraft. Oh, here we go. go now I'm unmuted. You know, Patty, yeah. this sounds a lot like what uh, some mega corporations like Halliburton and Bechtel have done to foreign countries overseas where they come in and sell them a big project like the Iguazu Dam complex in South America. And they get these glowing reports about how much uh, economic income, uh, economic activity and income is going to be generated from that. And then when the when this doesn't actually materialize, uh, they go after the country's natural resources. So it, it's really a, it's such a big scam like that. And I was wondering, doesn't anybody have standing to sue these organizations, these mega corporations, uh, for this whole setup. I mean, it, it's so classic. I mean, we're so used to it that uh, you always get under projects under bid, and then they always uh, have huge cost overruns. So I was wondering, does anybody have standing to sue these people? Well, there have been some lawsuits filed that have lost earlier, like during the 2017 bankruptcy of Westinghouse. There was a lawsuit after the commission approved to continue the project. But that lost. Georgia's law is pretty strong in favor of public service commission decision making, and courts will not overturn anything the PSC has decided because they say that's their job is to make these decisions. So um, it's really hard to win a lawsuit against the public service commission, and you know everything they've done is legal until someone does an investigation. And Are you talking about? You're talking about suing the commission and not suing the corporation that made these estimates in the first place? Yeah, I don't know who would who would take that on. I have talked to many lawyers about suing Southern Company and Georgia Power, but they always say that there's no standing because 
um, you know, they can say they made a mistake. They can they can say they didn't know. You know, there well, were generally in business when somebody makes a mistake, somebody has to experience the pain from that. Yeah. And it seems like the corporation should be standing up to get their share of the pain at least. Well, I think we should go to the right wing on this. Go to Grover Norquist, the Heritage Foundation, all these right, all these free market types. I can predict for you the next thing that's going to happen is the people in Georgia, within a year or two, it's going to be very easy with renewables and batteries to self-power a house. And you're going to have, I'm sure you've thought of this, thousands and thousands of people are going to want to leave the grid. And well, the only the only problem is we don't have net metering here, so that we have a very small return on power that's put back on the grid. So the payoff for rooftop solar is much longer without net metering. It's over yeah. twelve years. Yeah, but the the pain of paying for Volto is also <laughs> since it's being put on the on the homeowner, you're going to see a huge attempt by thousands of people in Georgia to leave the grid. Yeah, and, I mean that's better. sort of. I'm sort of like, I don't care about that because I care about punishing. <laughs> I mean, that's that's already too late by then. I mean, I would like there to be some backlash and pain now, not when the <laughs> bills are so high that people have to get off the grid and pay a $12,000 rooftop solar system. Like, that's ridiculous. We have no regulatory protection against a monopoly profit-seeking corporation. We or they need to not be in existence. I totally agree with you. Uh, let's go to, uh, well, Dave uh, Kraft, I, I want you to meet, to talk, and both of you, Patty, I want you to meet Tatanka Bricker. He's one of the stalwarts here of our our organization and um, involved with the Romero Foundation, Danny Sheehan and Sarah Nelson. Tatanka uh, will give you a word and then go to Dave. Yeah, it, this is a RICO lawsuit waiting to happen. And I would encourage you, if you, um, Danny Sheehan wrote one for the state of California, basically going after all the oil companies. Okay, he gave it to the attorney general recently of California. Uh, it probably would have happened if Newsom hadn't have, you know, done what he did to just betray rooftop solar and go to support the nuclear. But um, it really needs to happen, you know, the, the accountability. And this this just this is a RICO lawsuit waiting to happen, waiting for someone of standing and waiting for an attorney or a group of attorney that have the balls to do it because it, it or, is. Or the ovaries. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, listen, uh, we'll get all the information, Patty. You put you and Glenn in the loop here. And Tatanka, yeah. when he says that, is to be taken seriously. Uh, let's go to Dave now, who's also had a huge impact on Illinois. Dave, can you update and I assume you know you, Patty, or you you do now. Uh, can you give us an update on uh, what's going on in Illinois? Sure. Yeah, we're. I guess this this show is transitioning from the boondoggle of the largest nuclear reactors to the boondoggle of the smallest ones coming online with small yeah. modulars. Uh, so this is a transition period. Uh, it's probably bad manners to correct the host, but I have to make two corrections to Harvey's uh, introduction. Uh, first, to kind of paraphrase Mark Twain. Uh, rumors of my wonderfulness are greatly exaggerated. It's, it's more longevity. Uh, we've been at this for 42 years here in Illinois, watchdogging the nuclear industry. But the second is a misperception about what's gone on with our governor, uh, uh, Governor Pritzker. And uh, he came on a couple of years ago. This past year, there have been attempts to repeal a nuclear construction moratorium that Illinois has had in place for 40 years. Many states have had them. 
And their purpose was to prevent states from becoming de facto radioactive waste dumps, essentially. The law reads that we can't have any more nuclear power plants until a time when the federal government has a permanent disposal facility. The nuclear industry has been trying to repeal these all over the country, and they've been successful in four states so far. If you go to the Breakthrough Institute's webpage, you will find that that is one of the seven essential ingredients needed to promote the next generation of nuclear power. So the fake environmentalists are pushing it from that standpoint. Um, so fast forward to Illinois. Two years they've been trying to repeal the moratorium. And uh, in addition, they've been using that repeal as a Trojan horse piece of legislation to start promoting small modular nuclear reactors. So they actually put language in the legislation saying that Illinois should you know, give uh, re research and precedence to small modular development, blah, blah, blah. So we've been, we testified at seven different hearings in the last two years on this and have come to the conclusion that facts really don't matter. Uh, we've made every rational case possible. We had uh, M.V. Ramana as one of our expert witnesses. We had Ed Lyman do expert testimony from Union of Concerned Scientists. Um, the legislators just don't want to hear the facts. So it's been on, on the fast track up until literally the 11th hour of the spring uh, legislative session when one bonehead legislator decided to change the language from small modulars to advanced reactors. Mm. Gave us the opportunity to say, wait a minute, these two years of debate are totally invalid because we're, we're not talking the same thing anymore. When you say advanced reactors, you do have the possibility of building larger ones because some of the largest advanced reactors are 1500 megawatts right now. Well, somehow the governor got that message and he vetoed the bill. The, both the House and the Senate overwhelmingly passed it, but the governor vetoed it. So I know that's what people are cheering about but he's also said he's open to small modular reactors. And if the legislators go back and rewrite the legislation to incorporate better language, he would consider it. So it's not as good as it sounds, folks. And that's what we're fighting right now because this is the last week of the fall veto session starting tomorrow. And over the next three days here in Illinois, it will be determined, first of all, whether the veto of the moratorium will take place uh, we're hearing that might not, not even come up, but the pro-nuclear lobby in the Illinois legislature is putting together another bill, and we, don't, we haven't seen the language to that, which they might introduce, which would promote small modulars. So that's kind of the state of the state here in Illinois, but we know that this blueprint is being replicated around the country, and uh, uh, we've been working with um, Mike Carberry of Iowa and others on small modulars now for the last few years. And we essentially see the same thing going on. It's, you know, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But uh, in reality, uh, nuclear power for us um, is like a bad case of herpes. It never goes away. And the next time around, it comes back as a worse dose, you know. So we, there's just no cure for it, it seems. At this mm -hmm. point. So let me just stop there and see if there are any questions or reactions about that. Maharishi has a hand and Dorothy. Myra, go ahead. Thank you. Um, Dave, I wonder if you could clear something up. Um, you know, I hear people talk about small nuclear reactors or modular. 
And I think that that word small is just a, a way of making them sound uh, not so dangerous. And isn't that sort of a marketing ploy? How small well, are these yes. small modular reactors? That was one of the things that sunk the legislation as the differentiation there. If you go to the NRC website, uh, it's, a, it's unofficial, it's not in law, unlike the definition of advanced reactors, which is in law. But the NRC looks at anything of 300 megawatts and below as a small <laughs> modular reactor. Um, now within that category, there are two other breakdowns. Uh, anything from zero to 10 megawatts is considered a micro nuke. And these are the ones that are being pushed on the college campuses right now. Uh, Texas Christian Abilene, University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana, Purdue, Penn State. Uh, they're, they're touting these as research reactors and test reactors to test concepts. And as a result, they would be licensed differently than a power reactor would by the NRC. Trouble is the NRC hasn't got its act together on the licensing yet, so there's a lot of back and forth of what that's going to mean. Then there's this breakdown from roughly that 10 megawatts up to 100 megawatts, or excuse me, from about 100 megawatts to 300 megawatts. They call those um, micro nukes, or excuse me, mini nukes. So you've got micro, mini, and small, 300 megawatts or below. And then that micro nuke thing is supposedly a test, test uh, reactor type thing. Now, here's another very interesting point. They are not marketing. Oh, I want to come back to your marketing point in a minute too. They're not marketing these as power reactors. Um, and what they are uh, marketing them as literally uh, the possibility for use to generate process steam at industrial sites or at college campuses. Um, very small usages like that, but portably. In other words, they are considering being able to put these on trucks and train cars and move them around to different sites. We re I was recently on a Pacifica radio show. Uh, it was supposed to be a pro and anti-nuclear thing and it turned out to be a love fest with this guy. He's a retired brigadier general with national security experience. And we agreed on like 95% of everything. And the one thing he said was that this idea of small modulars being sprinkled around the country in hundreds, maybe thousands of places or put on trucks is an absolute national security nightmare because they would have no ability to track them properly, provide protective services, or have any kind of you know security arrangements for those things. Mm -hmm. So this is something we're trying to play up and get to the attention of the legislators of, you talk about mobile Chernobyl, buddy, you've got it. <laughs> so yeah, now the marketing weird. piece I wanna come back to, it's important because the marketing has been going on for three years. And it's largely been financed by the Department of Energy. You've seen uh, Grand Home going around the country doing all these love fest tours about how great small modulars are. We've seen tons of op-eds and, and letters and uh, you know the nuclear industry folks writing how wonderful small modulars are. This is a very systematic marketing effort to really soften up the already softened brains of the American public, let alone the brains of the legislators. Uh, to make small modular seem innocuous. And it's our job to make sure they get the idea that it's not. So you're right on target on the marketing thing. Wow, uh, unreal. And of course, the, the, the price per kilowatt hour, uh, even today, the, the, uh, of a small modular reactor is, is 
way higher than renewables, even though the small modulars can't aren't really going to be real for five or six years. Uh, they don't even have a working prototype, to my knowledge. And uh, if you look at the of the industry's own literature, they keep <laughs> going up uh, over budget and uh, beyond schedule. I mean, it's 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 like deja vu all over again with the big reactors. Well, the other There's thing no, about there, there, the other thing about this marketing is that we try and get across to the legislators, you know, because they talk about it as a jobs driver. The tax base will expand. We need grid reliability. We'll have more power. We remind them that they won't even be commercially available for 13 years till the mid 2030s. So we've redubbed them as uh, small mythical nuclear reactors, SMNRs, <laughs> exactly, or, or nuclear unicorns, because well, the difference between a unicorn and a small nuclear reactor is that unicorn shit doesn't last for 250,000 years. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we try and throw the marketing back on them. Uh, you know that, hey, you're talking fantasy here and you're going to hitch an entire energy policy for the state to, to fantasies. It, it's just irrational right. beyond belief. Well, I think Mike Hirsch has suggested that we call them uh, cute and cuddly uh, reactors. I think that's a good one. <laughs> um, okay, Dorothy, Wendy, and then Ron Leonard, please. Dave Kraft, it's great to have you, and I'm really great to be able to connect you with Patty Durand here. Very I'm important. Glad to meet you, Patty. Same. And Dorothy. And then yes, we can be grateful if they don't want to move around on rail cars. <laughs> well, I'm assuming, I'm assuming they would use rail cars. They just talk about them being mobile. They didn't say how. Yeah, exactly. Um, 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 Wendy, and then and then Ron Leonard. Thank you. Um, just, uh, two quick points. One, um, it's just something I'll reiterate that we say on the show a lot, but I don't know that I've heard it mentioned today. Is that you know the the underbelly, the secret kind of um, impetus, the motivator for pushing these things behind all the propaganda is that the DOJ or the DOD. I'm sorry, the DOD needs um, DOE. No, the DOD, the D the Department of Defense needs depleted uranium from the DOE. And there's all kinds of new um, walls that are coming down that would always separate the two for a long time they had. And in the recent budget, um, the DOD and the DOE have gotten much closer because there's certain minimums that the Biden administration has called for um, be supplied to the DOD. And so I think that these reactors are a big part of that. Um, I want another thing that we talk about a lot on the show, but I don't think um, you guys have been here for it. And it's really great to have you, by the way. And Patty, amazing work. Like, thanks for doing the long fight. And like, it sounds really intense. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing great. Um, my friend Maya Van Rossum actually wrote this book, um, Green Amendments. Uh, you guys are talking a lot about, you know, just all the, the different ways that the legislature is coming in between what the people people want and um what is safe for you know the public and uh just basic common sense so if you um recall recently that that case in montana where the kids were able to sue the state um for messing up climate basically um that was based on a green amendment that had passed in that state they actually have a constitutional amendment in the state of montana that protects the people for having rights and access to a clean environment and so um 
Maya started the screen amendments movement um, based off of an old law. She found that Pennsylvania has very similar one, and they've had a lot of successes by being able to prevent certain permits from um, being passed and just shutting down things that the legislature cannot override because it's a constitutional citizens amendment. And obviously not every state allows for ballot initiatives, but the ones that do, it's worth pursuing. And New York just passed one as well, and they were able to stop a permit from even happening. Because like what you were saying is having like that tangible injury, this provides a legal pathway to say like, we don't want a tangible injury to happen to the people. And this is risking the public health and the environment. So green amendments on forthegenerations.org. I'll drop it again. And if anybody wants to talk more, I'll put my email in there. Um, more. Thank you for the Thank book suggestion. Guys. I'll look into it. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. Thank Bye. you for that. And uh, we're at the top of the hour, four o'clock. Um, um, we obviously this is a great discussion. If we don't mind, uh, we could uh, uh, put out go to four twenty. If Steve, um, if you could uh, uh, do that for us, Steve Caruso or Wendy, and keep the keep the call going another twenty minutes uh, or so, that would be great. Am I missing anyone? If someone else was going to come on. From the safe energy movement, from no nukes. I don't I see Steve, Kevin Camp. I believe it was Steve Sondheim from Illinois, but I don't know that he showed up. I don't. See, I think he's out writing uh, West Side Story right now, so uh, <laughs> he's probably a little busy. But, uh, <laughs> okay, um, if he comes on, I'll be glad to call him. Anybody else that we're overlooking here, please uh, do this. But this is a critical. Uh, a mass of uh, uh, energy and talent here. Uh, Ron Leonard, uh, jump in on this, please. Ron Leonard. So, Harvey, I know you like the idea of a horse race, and that's what we got here. We have a horse race to higher cost and dangerous energy, and there's two areas of high cost. So there is what we euphemistically might call the mini reactor the mini reactor is 80 megawatts 80 megawatts is a small city and that's not so many but that's what they call it and then we have what uh i think is sort of the mid-scale uh, uh there's a company uh that uh is promoting that <laughs> they're called new scale and the new scale reactor is to say uh well they have one that's in the range of uh 400 and something megawatts. And remarkably, I don't know how this occurred with that particular one. Uh, they uh, started out in 216 and 220, and their price was the magnificent cost of $55 a megawatt hour. And then the price sort of magically jumped to 50, $58 a megawatt hour. And then, uh, you know, something happened. I'm not sure what, but the price soared to $89 a megawatt hour. So I don't know who will win this race, but certainly not the ratepayer. The ratepayer is being charged exorbitant cost for non-functioning, possibly fantasy projects that really have a questionable use in the real world the real world is that we have to convert our power grid to 100 renewable energy and we need to do that well in different states they have different numbers in new york state probably 2035 some states are going to 2030 some want to go to 2040 doesn't really matter we're late in late at the finish line 
uh, because we really need to cut back on this fossil fuel. And these things are just an outrageous boondoggle and having that burden shoved down the throat of ratepayers who can't afford to pay the electricity bill now on fossil fuel. And let's just triple the cost of electricity. That would be good for everyone. No, just say no. Well, here's the key now. We're seeing at Diablo Canyon that um, the, the numbers absolutely do not add up. And the biggest jump, and I saw an astonishing report today, that they have available more than three, they, or will very shortly, more than three times the uh, uh, capacity, power production capacity of uh, Diablo available in batteries. And so batteries have really changed because the argument for Diablo allegedly was we need it for backup, but they don't, they, you know, we have battery backup now. Now, the question on the small reactors is the price and the availability. You are saying, Dave, oh, and I do have a question very quickly before I lose track. Patty, the big hole in South Carolina at VC Summer, couldn't they make that as a community swimming pool? I mean, I don't know what they can do with it, but but my point is that the people that bemoan that cancellation are wrong and the cancellation of the decision makers should be praised for doing what was making what was a hard decision. Okay. Thank you for that. And, and when you're a commissioner, maybe you can persuade the South Carolinians to make it into a swimming pool. At least <laughs> yeah. that would be a good use. Okay. Yeah. So take my reactor, please. Okay, I'd like to respond to Ron a minute. Uh, in the chat, I did put a, a reference to a new movie that's just come out called Atomic Boondoggle. Run, mm. uh, it was a filmmaker, Jan Hocken. You can uh, see the trailer on YouTube. But she it's about 45 minutes long. Uh, one of the uh, prime interviewees there is uh, uh, M.V. Ramana from uh, British Columbia. And they really take apart the small modulars. But who benefits and where is, what is this about? Uh, this is the interesting thing about small modulars is that they don't really care if they work at all because they're still going to get paid and they'll get mm -hmm. paid from three sources. They will get paid from the Infrastructure Act, from uh, the two the two pieces of legislation that the Biden administration ran through. Put, I think uh, Nears calculated something like $70 billion worth of right. nuclear money is available mm -hmm. to the nuclear industry and the Department of Energy which is where all the universities are going excited because they're going to get those DOE grants if they have a project, mm -hmm. whether the reactors they design work or not. They get paid no matter what. That's and, the big driver right now is and, and it's a no-lose situation. Harvey loves to point this out, that we are going to have these small nuclear modular reactors by 2030. Would yes. anybody like to take 2031? Would anybody no, like actually, to like if 2035? I, could, the, the, I will double down 2036. The reactor you mentioned, Ron, is from New Scale. And their yes. website says that the first uh, pr a prototype reactor will be available December 2029. Which right. Is, but then when is the first? Uh, when is, you, you said 13 years. Dave, you said 13 years on the first available commercial um, a, right. a small reactor. Assuming Where did you get that? Assuming, assuming they even work. That's the first piece. Mm, right. We don't know if it'll work by 2029. 
you're going to have that as the prototype. And that's the only one that's been licensed so far. We, none of the other design proposals have been licensed. It'll take at least three to five years for, to get a commercial system going to manufacture them in numbers meaningful enough to actually be available. And, uh, and let's look at it conversely to so what, what we have today. Yeah, to, today, we're going to build probably 25 gigawatts of solar this year. And I bet you a buck it's going to go higher than that next year because we are being manufacturing solar panels in the United States. And probably by the end of next year, we'll be able to manufacture 60 gigawatts of solar panels in the United States for installation in the United States. And if we installed 60 gigawatts of solar panels in the United States per year for the next five years, well, that would be a pretty big power plant. And the, people will say you can't do that. You can't possibly build 60 gigawatts of, of solar panels a year in any country. Well, China is building over 100 gigawatts per year and installing them. Well, so let's that. get real here. Just yeah, the other Dave, day, go ahead. Excellent. Just the other day, a report was issued that we have 2,000 gigawatts of power that is trapped in limbo because the FERC hasn't gotten the licensing to give them transmission access. Now, 2,000 megawatts is the equivalent of 2,000 Braidwood-sized nuclear reactors, or I, I like to use the Dresden reactor because it's a little smaller. It, it's like 2,300 nuclear reactors is sitting waiting to come online. This 25 gigawatts of solar is, I mean, compared to what we already have in the pipeline, and half of that is ready to go. It's, it's like advanced stages of development. They're just ready to hook it up. On the very day that the Illinois Senate passed this bill to get rid of the moratorium and advance small modulars, a solar facility broke ground in the same county where the state capital was, an 800 megawatt solar plant, which will be online next fall. Well, listen, so the numbers, on, the numbers on the small reactors are really deadly. The numbers on the small reactors, because the cost of delivered uh, 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 um, electricity on reactors that don't even yet exist continues to rise. And, and, the, mm -hmm. uh, and the delivery date continues to fall away. These people are crazy. And, and meanwhile, <laughs> the, the, everything in the renewable business well, actually, uh, uh, wind power has risen because of of the um, uh, interest rates, but uh, but you know everything on the other side continue, continues to fall. If we're going to win on Diablo Canyon, it's going to be on the numbers, on the economics. So listen, we have forty people left. Uh, it's four oh seven. I think what really needs to happen is that the union pension funds uh, need to buy in to the renewable industry. And if the union pension funds will buy into the union in, into the renewables and guarantee union labor, we will win. I mean, now- we, Well, we're, we're already winning because the federal IRA act ma ma basically says mandated, you either use union labor or prevailing wage for any size project above five megawatts. And you also have to have trainees on every single one of those projects. So they're self-generating more people to do these projects every time they build one, and that's in the law. Fantastic. Unfortunately, in Illinois, it was 
the IBEW and the, the strong labor movement that uh, is pushing the repeal of the moratorium and building more nuclear. IBEW well, that's, that's really what, we've got to mm-hmm. break that. We have got to turn the union movement to, to renewable energy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it looks like it's geographically disparate. I mean, clearly in New England, the unions are in a different position. There's no more reactors in Rhode Island, Maine, uh, Vermont, Con- uh, uh, Massachusetts, uh, and unfortunately, Connecticut still has them. But uh, this is the big, this is, if we can flip the unions nationwide and get them invested in renewables, um, maybe maybe we'll win this. Ruth Strauss, go ahead. We've got 11 minutes before you can all go toke up. So, uh, 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 Ruth, go ahead. You know what, Harvey, but what I'm asking is off the subject of nuclear, but time sensitive, I, as in tomorrow. Um, so, I, you know, if you want me to wait until. Go ahead. You... What is it? Go ahead. Ruth. OK. Uh, and you're from Ohio. Uh, it, are they having the <laughs> final vote tomorrow on that amendment that, you know, is the twisted sister on abortion that's, you know, worded differently this time than the original one? Or is that going to be tomorrow's just early voting? Constitutional amendment tomorrow in Ohio to pass abortion rights. And the polls look good for the early voting. So we're keeping our fingers crossed here. Okay, so tomorrow tomorrow is the final vote because I'm going to phone bank today and tomorrow if, if it's the final vote. Yeah. Okay, tomorrow thanks. Is, thank Ruth. Okay, bye. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, tomorrow in Ohio, there is a constitutional amendment. Uh, the uh, the right wingers in Ohio tried to raise <laughs> the God love them. They tried to raise a passing a constitutional amendment to to sixty percent, and that failed. And they they tried all sorts of other stuff to keep this from being voted on. But it, as Ruth has pointed out, it will be voted on tomorrow, and it's possible the women of Ohio will uh, actually retain um, uh, or regain um, uh, the right to um, control their own bodies. What a concept. Uh, Dave Dave Kraft, uh, do you want to, and, and um, is, uh, are, are, go ahead and you want to wrap up and then, does anybody else want to jump in before we sign? This has been a nonstop, man. The only thing that has ever exhausted me in my life, has been these calls. <laughs> I mean, they are just really fantastic, um, incredible content. Uh, go ahead, Dave Kraft, uh, wrap us up, if you will. Ron Leonard, if you want to do the same, um, it's been great to have everybody. We still have 37 people with us, for God's sakes. Uh, go ahead, uh, Dave Kraft, please. Well, I think we, we pretty well wrapped ourselves up as we know that this is the next fight. We know that the federal government now is weighing in with big bucks and lots of money. So that's something that is going to have to be confronted politically as well. Is uh, I, I, I think one of the best arguments I've seen recently, though, was the slogan adopted by Nears and others who marched in the climate march in New York in September. And that mm-hmm. was a very simple slogan that real climate solutions aren't radioactive. And I think we have to use those kind of memes, you know, that and the unicorn stuff and whatever, uh, to really jam it down their throats, uh, to show how absolutely ridiculously absurd this whole proposal is at this point. Fantastic. And here's a question for you. If Georgia 
had taken the $40 billion that they blew on the, the two reactors of Vogtel and invested it in solar instead, which they could have done very easily starting in 2007. This wasn't exactly, you know, futuristic technology. How much capacity could they have gotten in Georgia in renewables for the $40 billion that they blew on the two nukes? Ryan, you got an idea off the top of your head? Uh, close to uh, um, 40 gigawatts of power, I would assume, enough to power the state of Georgia. 30 times over, right? Well, they're going to get, uh, allegedly, they're going to get, what, 4,000 megawatts? So um, I assume they could have covered what they're going to get from, <laughs> allegedly, from... Uh, the two power plants in Georgia are a little over 2,000 megawatts combined. Right. And I, I think Dave had a, a little mistake when he said that there was two gigawatts of power plants in the queue waiting to be built. It's actually two and a half gigawatts and possibly closer to three gigawatts. And we can power a good portion of the nation because if those terawatts, excuse me, not gigawatts, we could power the entire nation. The entire nation's use of power is 1.35 terawatts. So the amount of power sitting waiting to be built could power the nation with 100% clean energy. Right. That was the point. Wow. Uh, uh, Steve Caruso, you haven't spoken, Steve? You got a hand up? Yeah. Uh, I just found an article that on the west side of Columbus is where they got the uranium for Manhattan Project. They had a machine mm. shop down there. They had the guys milling the uranium. They said if they touched, they would spark pieces of uranium. There was like a haze, like a visual haze. Like when you see in the desert, you see that illusion of water or whatever. That was around that metal. So this is how dangerous this stuff is just completely ethereal. It, I'll put the link in the chat. It was BT Metal, and it was on the west side of Columbus and the near west side. It's just phenomenal read. Wow. Wasn't that the subject of a, of a Jimi Hendrix song? Sorry, okay. BT metal. No, <laughs> purple haze. Uh, sorry about purple that. Haze, okay, yeah. Wendy, Wendy Please. Wiederman. Thank you. And I can't think of the name of the other Jimi Hendrix song, but he's talking about like the red fire in the distance and all the kind of the torment of the, the people so, uh, escaping me right now, but it's on Electric Ladyland. So everybody go listen to that and feel a little bit better about the world. Um, Someone in the chat asked, asked me to actually plug the... um. The book again and just explain how great um the green amendments are as a tactic for so much of what we're trying to do because so many things can't be passed um this would just um preempt all the preemptions of the um the anti-democracy that we're seeing and i just want to kind of just do like a circle back to everything we were talking about in the first hour with labor and with cop city and you know, it's just what Cop City really represents a lot, too, is the fact that direct action, people coming together, grassroots organizing, people just showing up to rally in a nonviolent way, but just to stand up um, not only can lead to, uh, you know, collective power, like what's happening with with labor, you know, just by divesting in whatever way, whether it's your own labor or your funds or whatever it is, 
um but it's also a threat and that's what you see with cop city and like they wouldn't be trying to build these cop cities for the sake of suppressing dissent if it didn't work so you know it's like when we feel like helpless and hopeless and that we're just like tied because the people that we elect um just even if in the ones who do try to stand up for us like they're suppressed themselves um we just have to keep fighting and realizing that like the they wouldn't try to suppress us. They wouldn't try to take our votes. They wouldn't try to build the cop cities if our collective power didn't work. So just keep at it. And I just want to thank Dave um, and everybody for being here. Thank you. Good point. Steve, thank you for that. Uh, Steve Sondheim, uh, you've got uh, three minutes uh, uh, and, and then we're going to rock and roll. Good to have you with us. Hold on. I'm trying to unmute you, bro. I can't get you unmuted. I thought he was unmuted. Click on the left side. Now, now. Try yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, we can hear you now. Okay. I've been listening. I love it all. I'm uh, part of the Sierra Club's No Nuclear Free team. Been involved in all of this, and I love what you all are saying. There's something particular I want to mention. It's Arnie Gunderson's talk. Yes. An article, and it mentions two things, and I've got a reference that I'll put into the chat. He gave a a two-minute cartoon type of thing and a 30-minute thing at McGill University, where he makes two important points that I think really will resonate with legislatures. One is that the expenses are going to cause <clears throat> utility costs and ratepayers' costs up by three. And already people are very upset about that. And I think that the legislatures are sensitive to that, very sensitive to that. The other thing he mentions is that if we build a thousand nuclear power plants by 2040, which is what they're asking for, it will only make, and he gives the calculations, a 10% decrease in greenhouse gases. One, it'll be too late, and two, it'll be minor. And so these two arguments just put just completely put down these hocus pocus arguments that this is a panacea. It's a panacea for unlimited cheap energy and it's a, a false panacea for climate change. So I will send to Harvey, I don't know if I have the access to it now, but the two minute cartoon to this and then there's a 30 minute talk. It just, I mean, it's one thing, this is my opinion, all of these reasons about radioactive waste, about danger, about they're good reasons, but somehow they don't track with the average consumer because they're too far out or too scary or too whatever. But these arguments, it's going to cost too much to our everyday utility costs, and it ain't going to affect climate change. Uh, that's what I wanted to say. And thank well, you. What everybody. you want to say is, is perfect. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, everybody. Steve Caruso, uh, Mike Hurst, Wendy, um, uh, Tatanka, all you, everybody. Really incredible uh, piece of get together here. And, and let's let's keep on rolling here. We'll meet again next week. Uh, have a great time, everybody. And uh, I think we made some major breakthroughs here, uh, especially on the labor front. So thank you for that, Wendy. Uh, Dave Kraft, always great to see you, uh, and we will continue. No nukes, everybody. No nukes. See you next week. No nukes.